You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we started last week looking at the latter part of Isaiah, and we began by looking at Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to return there. Uh, I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, but we're going to look especially at verses 6 to 11. Isaiah chapter 40, on page 723. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her, but her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Lord, thank you for the wonder of your word to us and in help, help us as we look at it and enable us to be doers as well as hearers. And may we see Jesus in your name. Amen. Now, you'll have noticed in the prayers that we were praying for the CU mission and some of you were involved in the CU mission, and it'll be good this evening to hear something of how that went. But uh, I was in the campus, and um, it's quite funny, because you saw students walking down past the student union, and there was the gazebo with the CU people, and you saw people going, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, trying to avoid you, I'm sorry, but they were somewhere. Uh, Others weren't, and I thought, it's really good and it takes a certain degree of courage to stand there and to speak to people and to hand out leaflets. But what do you say? When you go into work tomorrow, what do you say to people when they start asking about Christianity or moaning or whatever? What about your family? Your children who've grown up and don't want anything more to do with that religion or your parents who are confused, they brought you up as good atheists. And now you've turned religious. What's happened? This shouldn't occur. That's what they think. What do you say? 
Christianity Explored. We've got the course there, but what do we actually say? When we go out in the streets around here, uh, when we do the work in Charleston and hopefully seek to plant a church there, all over Dundee, um, Hugh with Mission International and uh, the work that goes on from this place in different parts of the world, what do we actually say? We are not salespeople, but we do have something to communicate. And here in this chapter, God has told Isaiah to bring comfort to his people, that their sins have been forgiven, that the king is coming, and that they are to prepare the way, and they are to prepare the way by proclamation. Isaiah will obviously think back uh, to earlier in his life. Last week we saw that he was probably around 69 years old at this time. And uh, most of his ministry has been given to telling people that disaster is coming. He's got to this stage where disaster has come and he's seeking to comfort the people. But I think he's reflecting back to Isaiah chapter 6, his calling, where he confessed, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And uh, God calls him and Isaiah says, well, here I am, send me. And he's been sent with his unclean lips. In other words, he's not perfect in his speech at all. He's been sent to proclaim the word of God. And here, I think that Isaiah 6 is reflected here in a wider context. A voice says, cry out. And he says, what shall I say? What shall I cry? And these verses that we look at, Uh, Calvin describes them as the gospel in a few words. So they're worth knowing for that. So we'll look at it in two parts. First of all, humanity in the word. Um, If you like a grand title, human transience and divine permanence. And then uh, as we have time, we're going to look at the, uh, the God that we proclaim. Now here's the problem. And it's very simple. When you're trying to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I think the church does this, I think we do it, I think we're all tempted to do this. The temptation is to say, we've got to try and persuade people, we've got to try and appeal to people, we've got to be kind to people, we've got to show people how nice we really are. We've got to tell them how relevant Christianity is, because they're not interested in God. So we've got to show them. So, you know, that a classic... staple of CU missions was a toasty. Give them a toasty and they'll see how much Jesus loves them. Now I think giving someone a toasty is a wonderful thing, especially if it's me and it's cheese and ham. I'm I'm all for that. But it doesn't really tell them that Jesus loves them. Okay? It's a great, if you like, initial conversation starter. I think though that there's a danger that we fall into Again, especially people like me, preachers saying, look, I'm going to tell you how you can live a better life. We do the Joel Osteen thing. Be a better you. Live a better life. I'm going to tell you how you can solve your problems, how you can be healed, how you can be a better person, how you can have a better marriage. In other words, my message is going to largely be about you and it's going to largely be about me. And God comes in from the side if you like. He's the one maybe undergirding it all, and with all good intentions, we we talk about Jesus perhaps, but really what we're trying to think is, how do I connect with that person? How do I get this? And 
that's not wrong. Because we should be thinking about how we communicate with people, how we understand the culture, how we you know, communicate the language and so on. We should be thinking about that. But it's what we are communicating that is the key issue here. And this is what Isaiah sets up. He sets up almost two things. He talks about humanity and he talks about the word of God. And in my view, the Christian church in the UK today, including the evangelical church, has gone for humanity at one level, and the word of God is just whatever we as humans make it or want it to be. In other words, we are permanent, our needs are permanent, our desires are key, and God's word is there to be changed, adapted, used according to what we want. And Isaiah is so countercultural in this as he tells us about the word of God. So firstly, notice this. He talks about the frailty and fickleness of human beings. We really think we are the apex of creation. But what Isaiah says, in the overwhelming presence of God, you are but a breath. You're but a breath. For me personally, that is an enormous thing. Because in in the time when I was ill three years ago, my problem was I couldn't breathe. And not being able to breathe meant you would lose your life. You are but a breath. In our heads, we have this idea of our permanence. But the reality is we are but a breath. Job puts this wonderfully, Job 14, verse 1. Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow. He does not endure. Do you fix your eye on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him. And let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired man. At least there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stumps die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. And Isaiah says, you've got to call out to people. You've got to cry out to people. You are like grass. You are not eternal. Your memory will not live forever. You are not going to live on through your genes. Earlier in Isaiah 15, he'd said this, the waters of Nimrim are dried up and the grass is withered. The vegetation is gone and nothing green is left. And he's talking about the destruction of his people. Or in Isaiah 28, woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. And to make this point even stronger, he doesn't just say that we are like grass. In other words, that we are physically frail and that you and I this morning are but a breath away from eternity. 
He doesn't just say that. He talks about the flower. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. And this is a much harder one for us to accept. Most human beings will at least intellectually, if not emotionally, accept that we are frail and that we are mortal. But this really strikes at the heart of human pride. Because in using the picture of the flower, he's saying, the flower is beautiful. You look at the flower, it's not, it's not just a bit of grass. It's glorious, it's beautiful. But it fades. And what he's saying there is as human beings, you and I have many fine qualities, many good things. There is human creativity, human art, human love. There is human interaction. There are all these wonderful things about humanity. And he says it's like a flower in its glory. It withers and it dies. Is it Gauguin has just had a painting. I mean, he's long dead, so he won't see any of this. Sold for $300 million. Uh, Somebody from Qatar has just bought it. That's really 200 million quid for a painting. Are people buying it because they appreciate the art? No, they're not. They're buying it because Gauguin and Van Gogh and all of them have just been turned into commodities to be sold, not art to be appreciated. And that's appalling. But it's a fine image of even the greatest of human art and human achievement. It's frail, it will fade. Here, though, it's not just talking about human art, if you like, or human beauty. It's talking about human trustworthiness. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail. All their faithfulness. He's going on to speak about the faithfulness of God, and he's contrasting the faithfulness of human beings. And he's saying all the faithfulness of all the people that you know, is like the flowers of the field. It will fail. We now expect politicians to break promises. We'll make the vow. And everyone's as cynical as can be about that. We will hear our political leaders say things and we go, yeah, right. We don't believe it. But sadly, that cynicism is creeping in in other areas. People don't expect their friends to be loyal. Or if they do, they're very often let down. The husband who breaks his vow to be faithful. The wife who breaks hers. The believer. Hosea 6 says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. People go, well, you know, I'm putting my faith in the human spirit and human love and human kindness and human graciousness and human goodness and human faithfulness. And God says, yes, it's there, but it fades. It fades. that's what you're trusting, you are going to be so, so let down. Peter quotes this. He quotes it in this way. He says, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Those of you who um, like going to football matches, uh, you'll know some of the football songs. Uh, One of the most famous ones, which I won't sing, is Man United fans used to sing it and others have joined in. Glory, glory, Man United, you know days of glory. They'll talk about if, um, sadly not Dundee now, but if Dundee United go on to win the Scottish Cup, they'll talk about a glorious cup run and glory this. But it's all going to fade. It's all going to fade. The humanist says we make our meaning. 
we glory in ourselves. And God says, yes, but you put all humanity on that side and it will fade. The flowers, the image that he's using here is of the spring spring flowers that in that country, in Israel, bloom in the desert and then get destroyed by the wind, the Sirocco wind that comes up from the hot, dry, dusty regions of Arabia. And what the prophet is doing here, what God is doing here is playing on the Hebrew words for wind and spirit, which are very, very uh, similar. And he's saying the wind, the spirit brings life. God breathed his spirit into mankind and the man became a living being. That's where consciousness, that's where soul comes from. That's where you come from. God gave you your being and in him you live and move and have your being. But what he's saying in Isaiah here is God can take his wind away. God, it's not when your lungs stop working, it's when God withdraws that you die. When God withdraws his spirit, that is the end. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. And it's almost as though Isaiah is being told, you've got to speak to these human beings, but they are frail and they are spiritually dead. And what's the point? And I tell you that if our message was a human message for human beings relying on human tactics, human intelligence, human wisdom, human gifts, then we should all pack up and go home. But that is not what Isaiah is being told. He's told to have confidence in the message, not in the capacity of those who hear it. Why, why do I bother speaking to the children? Is it because I think, okay, if I just tell them this, 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 and this, then they'll think this, 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 this and them. No, that's not how it works. It's because I believe, as we'll see, that God particularly cares for the young children and he wants to hear them to hear his message and his spirit will eventually bless that to them. It's not the capacity of the people who hear it. When you're handing out leaflets uh, on the campus and you're thinking these people are not interested these people can't understand well duh of course they can't but you're praying that God's spirit will take and will use that because the message is the certainty and the eternity of the word of God he's saying God's word can be relied on unlike humanity it does not decay and it does not fade away earlier Isaiah had said, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And our faith is not in the spirit of human beings, but in the word of the Lord and then what God has said is true. So maybe 10 years ago, you went to church and you so felt the presence of Jesus. And if someone said to you, how do you know it's true? You would say, I know he lives because he lives in my heart. And then maybe recently you've been going along and... You just, you don't feel that anymore. You feel darkness and you feel oppression. And so you say, it can't be true then. Why? Why are you making that judgment based upon what you experience? Both those judgments were wrong. 1 Peter 1, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For, he then quotes this, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Now, let me unpack this just a little bit and explain what it's not and what it is. This is not fatalism. The word of God is not superstitious. And the word of God is not bibliolatry. By bibliolatry, I mean those people who profess to be Christians, and they are really doing my head in. I'm sorry if you're one of them, but you really are doing my head in and talk to me afterwards. Because uh, you go this, oh, I worship Jesus. I don't worship the Bible. Who worships the Bible? I don't know anyone who worships the Bible. But they say, I worship Jesus. You know, all that stuff about trusting in the Bible. No, no, I trust Jesus. Yeah, but who's Jesus? How do you know? You've got your own personal Jesus that you keep in your pocket? Is he on your iPad? You keep him in your bedroom? I mean, what do you mean you worship Jesus? What are you talking about? But they think it's so spiritual and they think, oh, my faith is not in a book. Well, neither is mine, but my faith is in the spirit who inspired that book. It's not a good luck charm to say that you believe the word of God. Um, I went to see American Sniper. Absolutely loved that film. But in one scene of the film, he carries a wee Bible, his mother, Bible that his mother gave him in his pocket. And one of the, his colleagues says to him, why do you have that? Is it bulletproof? Is it going to be one of these stories about I was on the, you know, in the trenches and I got shot at and the bullet came into my Bible and saved my life? You know, one of these corny stories that you hear every now and then. Um, 99 times out of 100, of course, it misses the Bible and kills you. So what's that got to say? I'm not sure. But, and the guy, the kind of hero says, no, no. He actually did read his Bible. It's not a good luck charm. This is what it is. It is trust in God that springs from a trusting relationship with God. It's trust in a person who has committed himself to us. Now, some of you will have no idea what I'm just about to say. Don't worry. Don't start watching the whole series. But others of you will know. Jack Bauer in 24. Okay? What does he always do? Apart from ensure that everyone around him gets killed. Apart from that, what does he always do? He always says to somebody, says to the woman who's just come into his life, do you trust me? I'm asking you to do something that's, that seems crazy. I'm asking you to be handed over to this mass murderer, to go on a plane with a bomb. And uh, don't worry. Do you trust me? I don't have time to explain. Do you trust me? I, and then he uses, often uses this, I give you my word. Well, Jack Bauer's not real. It's a fictional character. But that is actually what we understand by the word of God. God says to us, do you trust me? I give you my word. It is the word of our God. He's saying, I'm not treacherous. I don't go back on my word. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is the word of our God a word or message that comes from a relationship. A word that actually creates that relationship because Peter says you're born again by that word. God's word, in other words, has the same character as God himself. It is as unchanging and reliable as the one who spoke it. The word of our God stands forever. What do we mean by God's word? The Shorter Catechism says the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And such is the perversity, even of Christians, that some men especially have said, ah, 
The word of God is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It's not the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And so then what they do is they take the Bible and they say, now let's see which part is the word of God. That's the word of God. That's not the word of God. There was even a thing called the Jesus Project in which uh, scholars sat down and they put, I think it was a green ball if they thought it was the word of Jesus and an orange ball if they weren't sure and a red if they were sure it wasn't. So you and I are now expected to base our faith upon a bunch of scholars who sit somewhere and vote on what is or what is not the word of God. Do you really think that our God is like that? I am going to give you something that's so obscure that only a bunch of academics who've had specialist training and who are constantly fighting amongst themselves and who don't even believe in me, that they're the only ones who can tell you what it is. That's not the God I believe in. Now we are going to, I'm not going to go into this anymore, but Sinclair later on is going to do a series on this And I want to particularly recommend the Westminster Confession, chapter 1, because it has a brilliant summary of what the Word of God actually is. But of course, it's Jesus who says it best. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is why the devil, through the church often, through people in the church often, will do his utmost to water down, weaken and destroy the word of God. Because it's the word of God that stands forever. What God says is valid because of who God is. Now, some people will automatically go, well, that negates our humanity. Mm -mm. The very opposite, it releases our humanity. It releases us to be free. It releases us to listen. I went to a very sad funeral this week. It was a humanist funeral. If you ever want to be put off humanism, go to a humanist funeral. I'm, I'm serious. It was, I, it was all I could do not to get up and walk out. It was only out of respect for the dead person that, that I, I stood there because it was just appalling. And why was it appalling? Because there was no word of God. It was just all human words. Guff, meaningless, trivial shallow, pathetic, as empty and as lifeless as the bones in the coffin. And it made me weep because I thought, this is what we believe? This is what our culture wants? This is what you pay someone 400 pounds to come and talk what is self-evident nonsense? Why? Because the word of God. So you've got a choice. You can say, I'm going to go humanity. I'm going to go with the word of God. If you go the word of God, you get real humanity. And then think what the message is. Go on to verses 9 uh, to 11. You who bring good tidings to Zion. It's good tidings. He's basically saying, this is the message. Here is your God. Here is your God. The strong one and the shepherd. Calvin says, this expression includes the sum of our happiness consists solely in the presence of God. And he's saying, behold your God. Three times. He says he's close. He says, look and see, he's here. So the messenger is announcing, look, it's here. He's here. Sometimes you get the phone call. And this is what the phone call is. Can I see you? Sometimes I I phone people up and say, it's okay if I come to see you. And you can almost hear the panic at the end of the phone. People who don't really know me, they think, what have I done? Or what's wrong? Or what's he going to tell me? 
can I see you? I've got something to tell you. And you're dreading that it might be bad news. And there's a sense in which when we come into the presence of God, we're thinking, what's God going to say to me? Is this bad news? Is this like being called to the doctor's surgery? We've got the results of your tests. Would you like to come? I'd like to have a chat with you. Make sure you've got plenty of time. You, you don't want to hear that. When God is speaking to us, I think for some of us anyway, we're thinking, okay, this, this is not going to turn out well. What is the message? Well, look what he says. You bring good tidings. You bring good news. And the word used here in the Greek, the, not the Hebrew, but the, the, the Greek translation of it is evangelist. An evangelist is someone who brings good news. And it's feminine here because it agrees with Zion. Perhaps referring back to Miriam, Moses' sister, when she came with the good news and singing and dancing. In, uh, in other parts of Isaiah, Zion is the one that receives the message. But here, Zion is the one who proclaims the message. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And that tells us something about what evangelism actually is. We are to proclaim about God. We are to be bold. We are not to be afraid. We are to do it without equivocation. E.J. Young says this, there's a holy boldness the church has to have. She is not to pose as a seeker after truth, unsure of her message, but to declare in clear, firm, and positive voice that her message is true. But the modern church says, no, no, don't do that. That's too aggressive. It's better to be unsure and to be on a journey and to show how nice you are and to go alongside people and say, I feel your pain. Don't be so certain because certainty is unattractive and aggressive. Let me tell you what is unattractive and aggressive. When, you, when it's all about yourself. But when you are speaking about Jesus, the Jesus whom you know and love, when you are speaking, as we'll see just in a moment, about the kind of God that the Bible speaks of, it is so important to be certain about that. The good news is the Lord is returning. And he uses two images. And I'll just mention these to close. First of all, he comes with power as a warrior with a mighty arm. The strong will not be able to resist him. There is no limitation on his reign because of any inability. Isaiah uses this image many times throughout the book. Isaiah 30, the Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudburst, thunderstorm and hail. Or Isaiah 62, 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. So the message is, behold, here's your God, and he's powerful, and he's mighty to reign. None of this waffle that you get from clergy all the time. Our God is the God who comes in weakness, and there's nothing that he can do. Yeah, he comes in weakness because he limits his power, but it's not that there's nothing that he can do. He does the most powerful and the most astonishing things. I don't want to come anywhere near a God who I'm told, well, he's really, really nice, but he can't help you. He can just show you how to be really, really nice, and that will make the world a better place. No. Isaiah says, our God comes with power 
and his arm rules for him. And he brings his recompense, his reward. Now, I I don't think the reward here is that he brings rewards to people. I think it's much more a referral to the king coming. And with him, he brings his own reward, which is his people. When Christ died on the cross, he purchased for himself a people. And it's a tremendous image of this triumphant procession of the king coming in power. And these are the ones that God has given me. But then notice this, this dual picture here, because he comes as one who tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is not a picture of Rambo with a machine gun. This is, if you like, a picture of Hercules holding a lamb and caring for that lamb. As a shepherd carries the lamb close to his heart, he's saying the weak are not going to be left behind. They're not going to be left behind because the king is coming. He cares for the most vulnerable in the community, especially the young, in his bosom, close to his heart. The, the, the idea is that of a, he has the fold of his cloak and he has this arm which is used to subdue his enemies. Here it's used to hold his young ones. The power and mercy of God go together. The ruling arm and the gathering arm. He leads. He leads. He doesn't drive. He leads. Calvin, again, just puts this wonderfully. He shows his carefulness in watching, his gentleness in handling, and his patience in leading. Here he leaves out nothing that belongs to the office of a good shepherd. For the shepherd ought to observe every sheep so as to treat it according to its capacity, and especially they ought to be supported if they are exceedingly weak. In a word, God will be mild, kind, gentle, and compassionate, so that he will not drive the weak harder than they are able to bear. See, that's why Jesus got so angry when the disciples wanted to turn the children away. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you cause one of these little ones to sin. And you go to hell. That's why Jesus was so upset. So when I hear about a Jesus being for the weak, I go, absolutely, he so is. Because he is powerful. Because he is God. We are to reflect that Christ, of course. We are not him, but we are to reflect him. What is the implication of all that? just for us. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. This is not a religious book. This is not a, 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 a kind of thing that you go to every now and then you get some magic thing out of. It's not a superstitious thing. This is the living word of God, which will be here long after you have gone. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of Voltaire who had said, within a century, the Bible will be completely gone, completely gone from humanity. And Zacharias says that one of Voltaire's houses is now the headquarters for the French Bible Society. The word of God stays forever. You go, I go. All the philosophies and theories and isms that we invent, they go. But the word of God stays forever. 
As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 10. Every Bible, every word, every sermon, every conversation that you have that is the word of God will not return to God void. That's your assurance. Not that you are clever. Not that you have the ability. Not that other people you are talking to have the capacity. But that it is the word of God. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And that's why we lift up our voice. And that's why we shout. Not out of anger, not out of fear. Not out of trying to bully people or frighten people or anything. We shout because it is such good news. I'm sorry to do this to Tom, but yesterday Atletico Madrid beat Real Madrid 4-0. And in the report of that game, I was watching online, the reporter said, I hope that the government are going to award compensation or hearing aids to everyone within five miles of this stadium. Because the noise is unbelievable. They were shouting... Because their team, kicking around a pig's bladder, had managed to kick it into a fishing net more times than the other team from up the road. And that's what they got excited about. We have to get excited about God so that we actually have to be restrained almost in how we present the gospel. That's why we lift up our voice. If you're not a Christian, I want you to understand That's what we mean about coming to know God. Everything in your life is frail, but the word of God is not frail. God does not lie. God does not cheat. God does not change his mind. God is not capricious. And for those of us who are believers, I want to just simply say, you and I need to reflect much on God. I'm just having a conversation with someone just now, and they're saying, David, you're into theology. I'm not into theology. And I'm almost exploding because I'm going, no, no. Theology is about God. It's not about angels dancing on pinheads. It's about God. You're Christian. You have to be into theology. Because spiritual comfort cannot exist without a clear apprehension of the character of God. John L. Mackay um, used to be in the Free Church College. Used to actually be a Sunday school teacher in this church. Says this commenting on this passage, we behold our God now in the valley of tears. We are strengthened by anticipating the day of his coming when we will see him as he is. See, you are in the valley of tears. There is pain and there is sorrow and there is hurt and there is ugliness and there is confusion and there is darkness and there is despair in your life. And I can't come to you and I can't say, right, that's gone, that's gone, that's gone. I'm taking it away. But what I can say is, look up from the waves, look up from the clouds, look up from the darkness, and look to Jesus. Behold, he comes. He comes with a mighty arm. He's not going to let you go. And he comes with a tender arm. The things that concern you, the things that hurt you, the things that wound you, the things that bother you, the things that frighten you. Don't you think he knows that? Don't you think he understands? Don't you think he grasps? 
you don't need to freak out. You don't need to worry as though everything that's on your shoulders is just on your shoulders because it's not. Because underneath are the everlasting arms. Behold your God. This is your God. Not the one you make up. Not the one people tell you about. Not the one that Stephen Fry rants about. But the God who is revealed in his word. Do you understand the sheer arrogance of people who go, well, I just want to tell you about my God. I'm not interested in your God. I'm interested in God. I'm interested in the God of the scriptures because there is nobody so good, so pure, so holy, so beautiful, so kind, so powerful, so gracious, so loving as this God. And if you're a believer with all your sins, with all your faults, with all your darkness that you don't even know how dark it is, he's your God and you're his people and he comforts you. And if you're not a believer, he holds his hands out and he says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. How great is our God. Let's pray. Lord, how arrogant we so often are. We think that we can sit in judgment on you. We think that we have the capacity to understand and to know. And we know nothing. We don't even know our own weakness. We don't even know our own sin. And we are so prone to listen to the father of lies. The one who says, did God really say? The one who says, how can God be good? The one who says, how can you be forgiven? Lord, help us not to listen to the devil. And help us not to listen even to our own hearts. And help us not to listen to a confused and confusing world. But help us to listen to what you say. That your word stands firm and sure. That you are the good shepherd. That you are the one in whom is the feast of delights. That you are the one who in all the darkness and confusion and evil and sorrow and pain says, I work all things for the good of those who love me. O Lord, grant that those of us who are here, who are broken and hurt and confused, that we would lift our eyes and look to you and just be held in your arms. And know that, know that security, know that love, know that joy, know that peace. And grant, O God, that those who are running far away from you, who have listened to the lies, who have listened to our own hearts, who have been dominated by our fears, grant, O Lord, that you would stop us, that you would arrest us, that you would enable us to turn round, to repent, and to come back to you like the prodigals that we are knowing that the Father will run to us and sweep us up in his arms. Forgive us, O God, and enable us to see you in your beauty and glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's finish. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. 
If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.